Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Elder abuse is a crime that can go unnoticed if unchecked, and it affects one of the most vulnerable populations by making seniors victims of financial, physical, and often sexual abuse. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we put a spotlight on elder abuse and steps that can be taken to deter it. We'll hear from Dr. Patricia Brownell on the abuse older women suffer internationally. We'll also hear about elder abuse in prisons from Tina Mashey, an associate professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service. But first, I travel to a City Meals on Wheels elder abuse awareness training. That's where volunteers were being trained to recognize signs of abuse, what questions to ask, and what to do if abuse is suspected. Ohm Gillette is with the Queens County District Attorney's Office. She shares the story of a 62-year-old man named Howard. He had been in a serious car accident at the age of 22. From that time on, his mother had cared for him his whole life until she had passed away. He could get around. He could communicate with people. He does have some lasting physical effects from the accident. He drools. He walks with a limp. He's very friendly. He loves to talk about sports. You might not know right away that there was anything wrong. But Howard's story took a turn for the worst when a younger woman named Cher entered his life. He was very excited, obviously. This much younger woman, she was about 30, was suddenly very affectionate with him, and he had probably not had a girlfriend for the last 40 years, and he was excited, and they got married relatively quickly. So with the marriage, she gained access to his bank accounts, which she proceeded to more or less empty, and pretty quickly. Um, she took the money from his accounts. She took belongings from his apartment that she wanted. She would visit long enough to leave him some food, but not enough food because he lost enough weight to really concern his doctor. Howard reported that she never actually spent a night in the apartment. Turns out Cher was doing the same thing with multiple elderly men when she was caught. But what happened to Howard isn't uncommon. Malia Levin is with the Hebrew Home for the Aged. She says abuse can happen in different forms. Active neglect, which would be sort of purposefully and knowingly withholding necessary care or basic needs. And then, you know, passive neglect would be doing that without that malicious intent. Malia says abuse often isn't reported, especially when the perpetrator is a member of the victim's own family. People are very afraid, especially because so much of this is perpetrated by adult children or grandchildren, 90% is friends or family members, this New York State prevalence study found. And so, right, you don't want to get your child in trouble. And then there's this fear that if you report to anybody, then like everyone's going to go to jail, you know? And it's like, that's a real big fear, which is not accurate, but is very frightening. Rachel Shiro is the chief program officer of City Meals on Wheels. She says the program's volunteers are already in the homes delivering meals, so training them to spot elder abuse is a logical next step. I believe that informing, empowering, and educating our volunteers and our meal delivery staff allows them to really feel like they're going into the homes of these homebound elderly with tools. These people are not their relatives. They're not friends necessarily initially, but they're going in and they're able to better their quality of life if they see something or notice something that is not right, and they're able to stand up and protect this person. Rachel says the root of elder abuse can often lie in society's attitude about getting older. I believe that we live in an ageist society. Uh, we favor youth. 
and young things and looking young, and this discounts our older homebound people, especially those who are behind doors and are not often seen. And when we talk about things like elder abuse, people don't realize how often it, it happens and how vulnerable our clients are. To find out more or how to volunteer for City Meals on Wheels, visit their website at citymeals.org. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Now I sit down with Dr. Patricia Brownell, a scholar with the Ravison Center of Aging. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, and thank you for having me on your program. Well, thank you for being here. And we're really going to take a look at neglect, abuse, and violence of older women from an international perspective. So, Dr. Brownell, how does elder abuse vary from one country to another, or does it? In some ways, it does not, because the, the categories of abuse of older people are pretty common across all societies, and that physical abuse, psychological abuse, neglect, financial abuse and exploitation, and those are probably the four most common categories of abuse. The uh, other types of abuse that might be seen in, for example, some developing nations could include uh, harmful traditional practices against widows, probably of all ages, but um, most likely older women, and also in some societies targeting older women by community members with accusations of witchcraft that are used to justify harming, even killing older women and taking away their any property or possessions they might have. Now, Professor Brownell, let's back it up to traditional practices. Uh, okay. Could you go into that a little bit more, explain what that means? Certainly. In some societies, uh, widows are uh, forced to observe or are targeted with um, what we might call harmful traditional practices, some of which are outlawed but are still practiced, particularly in rural areas. I think many people are familiar with the practice of sati in parts of India. What is that? Where widows are expected to emoliate themselves in funeral pyres of their husband's remains. I'm sorry, do you mean that they're supposed to burn on the pyre with their husbands? That's right. That's a practice that, I've never heard of. And that's outlawed in India, but still practiced in some rural societies. Dr. Brownell, um, what is the purpose yes. of that? Why is that done? It has to do with the notion of patriarchy in society and of women, wives being the possessions of their husbands. And when their husbands die, their possessions may be thought to accompany them into the next life as, as an example of a belief system that might include the wife being expected to join her husband in death. But it also helps families that are struggling with poverty to, and a widow might, might represent a second mouth to feed and not one that's um, highly regarded or respected in the family system. So it has some practical purposes that are, of course, very harmful and discriminatory against women. Could you pronounce it again? Seti? Sati. Sati. Now, you said this was outlawed, but does it still go on? It, it's 
outlawed, but it still goes on, not as much, and it's difficult to control, as are uh, many harmful traditional practices against older women and widows because these might be practiced in rural societies that are not amenable or um, that governments are not able to reach very effectively. So that's a very extreme example. Do you have Um, any other examples of traditional practices that might uh, lead to elder abuse of women? Well, for example, women who are widowed, uh, unprotected by husbands, who may be targeted by community members as accused of witchcraft. And this happens in some societies on the African continent, Nepal, some other societies in in parts of India where there is a belief, active belief in witchcraft. And older women are among the most vulnerable and marginalized in society. And they, particularly if they might have possessions, houses, other property, may be targeted by the community members as witches and killed or driven out of society. Another may be older women who are required to marry family members of the husband, whether or not the woman agrees to this. So, Dr. Brownell, you're saying the traditional practice of calling these older women witches is to take their property, but what's the... That may be uh, one of the outcomes. And this is, not to dwell on this, these are um, probably not the norm. These are just some examples of... Um, traditional harmful practices that could affect um, older women, particularly in rural uh, societies where there are belief systems still around a person's ability to cast spells. And I have to ask, though, what would be the requirement for an older woman to be forced to marry someone within the family? What purpose does that serve? The purpose would be to include, maintain the family lineage, maintain the family name, to include the widow in the family in a different role. And this is a very, very old practice. It's even mentioned in the Bible. So these are very, very old traditional practices that have been pretty much eradicated in a lot of the world, but are still practiced in some parts of the world. And these are, from a Western perspective, they seem exotic, they seem extreme, but from an international perspective, this is recognized as a form of gender-based violence and discrimination. Dr. Brownell, in your research, you said that older women sometimes don't feel like they actually can be welcome in some programs that might help them? This really goes back to how service systems have evolved and, you know, I'm going to focus on the West for a minute to assist and intervene with and prevent neglect, abuse, and violence against women generally, and then older women in particular. So I've identified three major service systems that address abuse and violence against older women. One is the domestic violence system, and in that system are really designed to help younger women legally separate from their husband or spouse and become empowered and self-supporting so that they can move out into the community independently and be able to 
support themselves and their children without the abusive relationship with the spouse. For older women, this model, service model, may not fit very well because older women may in fact be receiving Social Security, receiving pensions, and the abuse may be perpetrated not by a spouse partner, but by an adult child, an adult grandchild, other family members, or even carers. So this model is not necessarily a good fit for older women who are experiencing abuse and neglect and violence. And what was the second service model, Dr. Brownell? Promoting active aging. And in the United States, the area agencies on aging, the local offices for the Department for the Aging are really um, intended to promote independence of older people living in the community for as long as possible. And the services are really geared toward supporting the older person who is um, uh, does not need a high level of care, who is mentally competent, is able to make decisions about uh, what they would like for the way they would like to live their lives um, to support autonomy. And this, the services there are could include Meals on Wheels, uh, legal services to help people remain in their, in their homes, to protect them from exploitation, where they may um, lose money uh, if uh, to uh, somebody who's exploiting them, whether a family member or someone, a stranger in the community who's a, a con artist. And um, abuse from that perspective, particularly for older women, um, is geared toward someone who is wants to live independently um, in the community, but has a relationship with a family member that is an abusive one. But they have the legal right to decide what they, who they want to relate to and um, how they want to handle that abusive relationship. And Dr. Brownell, what's the final one, the final and third? And the final one is what we might call a dependency framework or an adult protection framework. And this is really applies to older adults, including older women, um, who are uh, physically or and or cognitively or mentally incapacitated. Because we know that older people are a very diverse group of people. People can be vital, involved members of society, but older people also can be afflicted with challenges related to aging or, or other challenges. And in the case of the dependency framework, this applies to older women who are um, unable to care for themselves. And there the vulnerability uh, may be that they're dependent on carers, whether family members or professional carers, who might take money from them or even sexually abuse them. And they are not likely to be able to necessarily testify uh, as to what's happening with them or be able to reach out for help themselves and need some protection. So, Dr. Brownell, where do you see the help coming from on an international framework? Should it be within those governments and groups, or should there be some kind of United States intervention? It is definitely from the national governments that assistance and intervention 
would need to come from, certainly not from the United States, but the United Nations has the ability to support research, to use the powers of the United Nations to raise awareness and to reach out to governments to uh, encourage them to identify elder abuse and abuse of older women as an important issue and to develop legislation and services to target that. Thank you so much, Dr. Brownell. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Robin Shannon, in the studio with Fordham Associate Professor Tina Mashey. We're discussing elder abuse in the American prison system. I'm here with Dr. Tina Mashey, Associate Professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service. We'll be discussing elder abuse in prisons. Good morning, Dr. Mashey. Good morning, Robin. So start us off. What makes elder abuse in prison different than elder abuse elsewhere? Okay, I think the important thing to think about when we talk about elder abuse in prison, that we are talking about an experience that has happened later in life. However, it is important to think about the trajectory or the pathways of trauma and stress among the people who are older in prison. If we want to end violence or prevent elder abuse, we need to think about what is it that we want instead? So if you think about it from a human rights framework, and if the ideal conditions are, is that every individual is entitled to health and well-being across the life course and to follow their purpose and passion, and often in the context with others, which is often their families and communities, that we need to think about what breaks down a person's ability to be safe and protected across the life course, especially in childhood as well as in old age when you have increased vulnerability. So when we think about human rights, what what is it that makes them important when we think about eradicating abuse across the life course? One is that every individual is valued and should be treated with dignity and respect, and every human is entitled to these human rights, okay, and to be treated with dignity and respect. Another important aspect is that we all have a duty to serve others, and governments have the duty to serve their citizens. So can you explain to me what exactly is going on in government in prisons that define elder abuse? The other important aspect of human rights is that there's five major domains of human rights, and that's political, civil, economic, social, and cultural rights. Now, if you look at elders in prison, many of those have had their political and civil rights denied prior to prison, as well as economic, social, and cultural. Okay? So, if we talk about cultural rights, we are clear that there's a disproportionate justice involvement of racial, ethnic minorities in underserved and underrepresented populations. So right there, that's a violation of those rights. When in prison, we have older people, the majority are racial ethnic minorities, then that's a significant issue. So you're saying a lot of the seniors that are incarcerated right now are minorities? The, yes, okay. disproportionately represented. Okay. 
as well as economic. Many of the people that are elders in prison come from histories of poverty or economic disenfranchisement. So we're beginning with these disparities as they're coming into the system. Also, political civil rights, many of them, as I found in my research, had histories of abuse prior to prison. And the reason why I bring that up is because these social structural types of trauma uh, that have to do with racial discrimination, could be gender discrimination, there are a disproportionate number of men in prison, 95% men, 5% women, of which that statistic continues into old age. So I think the important thing to think about is that there's these histories and there's social structural barriers or traumas that lead up to them being in prison. What's important is that these experiences of abuse, social structural abuse, still impact them in their old age. The other area is interpersonal trauma. Over 50% of people in my study reported histories of physical and sexual abuse before the age of 18. So these are incidences that contributed to them becoming incarcerated? Is that what you're saying? According to their reports, the trauma does still impact them today. These prior experiences, in terms of their subjective reactions, an event occurred, it may have occurred a long time ago, but according to what I am hearing from the people that I worked with in terms of my study in prison is that it still affects them very much today. So the trauma is alive and well in them, even if it happened in the past 30 to 40 years ago. And how does that affect them now? They're thinking that about it in terms now, that it bothers them and it also increases the um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress and other psychological distress or mental health and or physical health. So there's an idea that part of elder abuse, specifically in prisons, is the idea that their past experiences are traumatically affecting them now, and that's part of the abuse? Is that what you're saying? Yes. That, that has to, when we're thinking about elder abuse in general, but particularly in prison, that we need to think about the history of the individuals that led up to their current situation. And that's if we're planning on doing something to move towards elder abuse prevention in prison. Exactly, because it's a process that leads up to the current situation, which only exacerbates over time. And when you get into a setting such as a prison, it becomes even more secretive and enclosed. What makes elder abuse in prisons different than elder abuse elsewhere? Okay, in prison, the fact that it's a social context there, which is more hidden in general from other settings. We know that there's abuse in nursing homes. We know that there's abuse in the community where elders are more at risk of uh, crime victimization. And we also know that in the family home, which is another social context or setting, elders are at high risk. Okay, when you get into a prison, Many people do not have access to that except for the people that are inside that system. Wait, so do it, not have as, uh, access Access to, to what? To the prison. So in terms of monitoring it, it's a, it's a closed oh, system. Okay. So if abuse can prevail or, or more than likely to happen in secret, well, here we have a society, the criminal justice system or prison, where the general public doesn't have access to. And actually, many people don't even think about 
the fact that elder abuse might be happening in prison. So because it's such a concentrated place, you don't have any person who can identify that elder abuse is going on within the prisons? Well, there are would be some people assigned. Elder abuse is often described similar to child abuse as acts of commission or omission. Commission means something that is done to some someone, such as physical assault or sexual assault, uh, two major areas of uh, elder abuse. We also need to think about neglect, and that could be in the form of medical neglect. It also could be of others uh, not doing something for that older person that they that they need done. Uh, There's also a movement about exploitation. There's financial exploitation. So if you think about uh, physical assault in prison, there are many times uh, and reports I have, including my own study, of elders being either raped or physically assaulted in prison. And that could be in the form of a correctional officer or staff similar to how it happens in the community, except in this case we have another range of staff where correctional staff may engage in physical abuse against hitting, kicking, verbal degradation. But don't they do that? Isn't it possible that that could happen to any prisoner? That could happen to any age person, but older people may be more at risk. Because as people are aging in prison and you're becoming more frail and elderly, if it's an environment of self-protection and you are getting older and you're not able to protect yourself to the degree that you were when you were younger, you are more at risk. Depending on the type of facility, older people might be mixed in the general prison population, which might put them more at risk. Some prisons have specific units. They could either be a geriatric-specific unit where you have people age 50 and older, which actually is the definition of elderly in the correctional system, and mostly due to their health status, is that they're finding that people in prisons that may be age 50 have the mental health status of somebody 15 years older. Oh, why? Because of high personal risk histories, such as substance abuse, mental health, So these personal risk factors, and then you put them in the stressful conditions of confinement, that puts a toll on physical and mental health. And we do know that violence is a precursor to later life adverse physical and mental health outcomes. Now, Dr. Mashey, you said that some prison populations separate the older prisoners from the younger prisoners. Why don't more prisons do that? Well, I think, first of all, is similar to the idea of elder abuse, people first have to identify it's an issue. And so this whole movement towards understanding the aging crisis in prison, that's fairly new since about 2010 when Human Rights Watch reports have come out. And I've been doing research in this area. The American Civil Liberties Union is just coming into the consciousness of people that this is an issue to be concerned about. And identifying it, you need to do that to then begin to come up with a solution. So becoming aware and and port barriers to finding the solutions and creating these type of units is that it takes human resources as well as financial resources to create these kinds of units. Depending on how you create them, they may be more costly to a correctional setting, which was not designed to be a geriatric facility, especially a long-term care facility. Now, speaking of costs, in your research, you also gave a specific amount of 
money it costs to house senior prisoners and also how the population is growing. So help us put that in context, how much it's costing taxpayers. Estimates generally say that it costs about three times more to house an aging person in prison. For instance, if it costs 22000 on average to house someone in prison that's uh, younger, it costs about 68000 to house someone who's older. It begins to triple over that if you have someone with serious health and mental health needs in prison. And is that because you're taking care of the prisoner's health and well-being and right. medical issues? Exactly. Okay. It's like significant medical issues, which include cancer, HIV, AIDS, dementia is a big issue. It's five times higher in prison settings than it is in the general public. Now, Dr. Mashey, in your research, you state that older adults are less of a threat to public safety than their younger counterparts. Why is that? Usually, generally with age, they find that people are less likely to commit crimes. It's just part of the natural aging developmental process. They've sort of matured out or aged out of committing criminal offenses. Some other reasons for less likely to commit crimes is that you have a stronger social support network in place. So if people are reuniting with their families and reevaluating their lives over the life course and thinking about what kind of contributions they want to make to society or their legacy, they're thinking more about that. But I think the biggest thing is they're just aging out and the reasons to commit crime are not. Thank you, Dr. Mashey. Thank you very much for having me, Robin. My thanks to Tina Mashey, Patricia Brownell, and City Meals on Wheels. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Canlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can listen to past shows on our webpage at WFUV.org. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at FOCON, that's F-O-C-O-N, and like us on Facebook. Stay tuned, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.